Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, this will be a fun one. Landon Lucas, repeat guest. He is the host of the Glue Guys podcast with his dad on the Field of 68 Network. It was fun to talk to Landon earlier this season, so we'll get a quick recap on his thoughts, KU's weekend in Fort Worth, and sort of moving forward, what he expects to see from the Jayhawks, how Bill Self changes his coaching philosophy in the tournament. We're going to end with uh, a deeper dive on KU's upcoming weekend with the matchup against Providence and then potential matchups versus either Miami or Iowa State if they go on to the Elite Eight. But I want to start with some history. And this is not history that you didn't know about, but I'm going to put some context into some things that if you're a Kansas fan, you've probably thought about and probably gives you a little bit of anxiety this time of year. And that is opposing teams going nuclear from three when you least expect it. Because that's exactly what happened when KU played Creighton on Saturday. Creighton went 12 of 28, shot 43% from the arc, and that was a team going into the game that was one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the country this season. I think they ranked around 309th going into that game in three-point shooting, and they went off. And that's the type of game that you probably felt like Kansas was going to lose because it feels like, right? It feels like that's the type of game that Kansas always lose. But does the actual reality, does the history of that match your feeling? Does Kansas always lose those type of games? I'm going to go back to starting in 2017. So the Frank Mason, Josh Jackson, and fittingly Landon Lucas season where KU loses to Oregon in the Elite Eight. In that Elite Eight game in Kansas City, Oregon went 11 of 25 from three, They shot 44%. The next season, Final Four, 2018, Kansas' season ends in the Final Four against Villanova. And this is the the cream of the crop, right? This is the gold standard of teams going nuclear from three against Kansas in the tournament. Villanova went 18 of 40, shot 45% from three. KU gets boat raced, game over. Season over. 2019. In the round of 32, Kansas loses to Auburn. Auburn goes 13 of 30. They shoot 43% from three. 2021, there was no season in 2020, so we don't have any history to go off that. 2021 KU season ends in the second round. USC, 11 of 18. They shot 61% 
from three in that game. So that's four consecutive tournaments where KU's season ended by a team going scorched earth from three-point range. And then you've got this year. Creighton, 12 of 28, 43%. The only difference is Kansas has lost. So the first perception does meet reality that teams always seem to go nuclear from three against Kansas. But are, are they an anomaly? Are they an outlier? Or are other teams, the other traditional powers in college basketball, experiencing similar phenomenon? Is this just the product of being a good team, playing lots of tournament games, so you're bound to have teams get hot from three? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at the other powers, the other teams that are constantly in the tournament, winning games, going deep in the tournament. All right, so let's put parameters to it, because every single game that I just mentioned for Kansas, teams made more than 10 threes and shot over 40% from three. And those are somewhat arbitrary endpoints, but, I mean, we have to put limitations on this somewhere that feels like a good one because 11 threes is a lot, and shooting above 40% from three is really, really good. So we're going to go with that for now. So these are how many games each of these teams have had where an opponent made at least 11 threes and shot over 40% from three. Duke, in that same time span, since 2017, has had approximately zero games in which a team has shot at least 11 threes, 40% from three. Kentucky, same time span, zero. Gonzaga, same time span, one. Michigan State, one. North Carolina, two. Villanova, one. So Duke, Kentucky, Gonzaga, Michigan State, North Carolina, and Villanova have had a combined five games in which an opponent in the NCAA tournament made at least 11 threes and shot over 40% from three. Kansas has had five of them. So the notion that this always happens to Kansas, and if you're a KU fan and you're used to getting made fun of online or made fun of by your friends who are fans of other teams for saying that you always complain, that this is the, you're the only program that this happens to, uh, you kind of are. And you may be a little justified in saying that because for whatever reason, this happens to Kansas way more than it happens to anybody else. Now, part of this is probably luck. I think a part of this is uh, baked into Bill Self's general defensive philosophy, which is we're not going to allow anything down low. We're not going to allow you to get any easy shots inside. Now, the Creighton game specifically... I guess you could say that is baked into the philosophy, but more than anything else, it is Greg McDermott coming up with a game plan on the fly because he was missing his best player or his best defensive player, his inside presence. So they basically had to play stretch, stretch the floor and a high variance style, right? Like you're a bad three point shooting team. So more often than not, if Creighton were to go into a game with that game plan, they would miss those threes and they would get run out of the building. But it was that night where the shots were falling, and that's how they were able to make it a really competitive game. You go back to last year, USC, um, I mean, that was, again, a product of, you had great big guys in the Mobley brothers, but this is something that I think is even more baked into KU's history, is KU playing with the traditional big, or you know even before 2017, which isn't what we're really looking at here, but you can go back to, I mean, the VCU game, everybody remembers that. Even before that, uh, Bradley, uh, 2000, what was that, 2006? When they went really hot from three as well. So there's 
there's examples of this in the past, but as of late, we've also seen teams who have big guys who can shoot, who can come out and stretch you a little bit. Now, that's not exactly what happened versus Auburn, um, but, I mean, Villanova certainly had it with their big guys. USC had it where Isaiah Mobley had the, the game of his life shooting. So there's an element of teams playing mismatches and saying, well, they're going to have great interior defense. Even if they don't have the great shot blocker, the great rim protector, they've had guys like Landon or even Dave who can be stalwarts. They can at least prevent you from wanting to come inside. They're not thought of as great rim protectors because they're not. But if there's anybody who can get the best out of his big guys and turn them into serviceable rim protectors, it's certainly Bill Self. So uh, I, I think that's part of why teams have been able to exploit Kansas on the perimeter. Is there anything to do about it? Probably not. I mean, there's enough science, or uh, I shouldn't say science. But you know what? It is science. It's, it's sports science. Where's John Brinker when you need him? There's enough data to suggest that there's very little you can do to prevent a team from shooting if they want to, right? Everybody would go into a game against Golden State and say, we got to stop Steph Curry from shooting threes. Run him off the line. You know what Steph Curry's going to do? He's going to take two steps back and shoot it from there. And if you come out and guard him there, he'll take two steps back and and shoot it from there. Go back to 2018 Kansas. That was their bread and butter. That's their identity. If three-point shooting's your identity, you're going to find ways to shoot threes. And that's what KU routinely did. Think about Devontae Graham, how deep he was shooting from. We talked to Malik Newman a couple of weeks ago, and he said in the offseason, the coaches told them to all shoot 150 NBA threes before they left the gym each night. That's because they knew how teams were going to guard him. There's always going to be an emphasis on shooting threes if that's your strength. Therefore, there's nothing you can really do to take it away. Not every team's built like that. Not every team has guys with NBA range. So there's more you can do to prevent shooting threes as opposed to actually stopping them from going in because you're less likely to block a shot from 22 feet out than you are a shot two feet out. I don't really know what KU is supposed to do here unless they go more to athletic five men who can come out, who can switch easily, who can move their feet, have good lateral quickness. But those guys are five stars. Those guys are one and done because having those sorts of traits, they lend themselves well to being professional players. So easier said than done to get them. I would chalk this up more to luck than anything else. And I would imagine over the next five to ten years, this probably balances out a little bit for KU. I want to talk about something else before we get to Landon Lucas, and that is Ochai Abaji and his struggles shooting the ball as of late. I mentioned this in the last episode, and I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into it and give you a little bit of context. If you go back to the start of February, so after anything after that blowout loss to Kentucky in Allen Fieldhouse, Ochai's shooting numbers have dipped dramatically since then. So that's about 16 games, about a month and a half of basketball. Ochai is 30 of 97 from three. That is about 31%. He's averaging still 17 points, five rebounds, almost six rebounds per game. So the numbers are still good, but the shooting is down. And it's not just three-point shooting. He's also shooting about 49% inside the arc in that span. Now, just to give you some context, here's what he was doing before that. So I gave you the numbers, 31% from three, 49% inside the arc. So everything before that, the 20 games he played before the start of February, 
He was shooting 46% from three. He was shooting 56% from two. He was averaging about 21 points per game. So down about four points per game and pretty significant drop-off in terms of shooting the ball. Is he in a slump? Uh, perhaps. I would th- I say more than that, more likely than, than him just not having it right now would be the fact that teams have adjusted and are centering their defensive game plan around slowing him down. That's what happens when you torch everybody for two months. Coaches are going to come in and say, you need to stay on his ass all night. I think back to the Courtney Ramey game, uh, the Texas game, the first one in Austin. That was the first time we really saw a team just completely take Ochai out of the game. He finished that game with 11 points. He went uh, four of seven from the field, only took three threes. That was a guy who was capable of face guarding Ochai for 40 minutes. That's exactly what he did and effectively took him out of the game. Now, that's tough to do because you have to have the defensive personnel to do it, and not every team does have the defensive personnel. And when I look at the, these upcoming matchups against Providence, and then if you're able to win that game, either Iowa State or uh, Miami, I mean, if I'm just pulling up the numbers really quick here and looking at what Ochai did against Iowa State in those two games, uh, the first game out <laughs> the first game out in Allen Fieldhouse, he had 22 points. He went 4 of 8 from 3. And then in the rematch, the one in Ames was the game where Ochai didn't play. So uh, I would imagine he's licking his chops to go up against them. I think what TJ Ultzberger's done this year is phenomenal. And the fact that they're still alive, we'll get into that later. But uh, I don't think they have the defensive personnel. I don't think anybody has the defensive personnel to face guard Ochai for 40 minutes. So it's going to come down to defensive coaching, game plans, scheming things up. Good luck. I mean, this guy still, despite falling off a little bit, still remained one of the top five players in the country. And more importantly than that, I had talked about this in the last episode. There are ways to impact a game outside of shooting. Hustle plays, defense, rebounding, and Ochai does all of that in spades. And that was never more evident than the end of the game against Creighton, where you see this guy battling through it. He can't find his shot. And in recent years... His sophomore season, his junior season, if he doesn't find his shot, he maybe fades away into the background a little bit, right? It's not my night. Let me help get other guys involved. Let me sort of facilitate and sort of get out of the way because I don't want to become a hindrance to the team. That's not who Ochai is anymore. This guy transformed his game over the offseason, transformed his mentality as well. He is not going to be taken out of a game. And I still think when you look at the rest of the season, you look at his shooting as of late, just in the tournament games, Uh, He went one of five against Texas Southern from three. He went one of three versus Creighton. And I can look at the the full sample size of those 16 games since the Kentucky game and say, okay, this dude's shooting 31%. That's below average. So something's off here. But even despite that, I see three of six against Texas in the Big 12 championship game. I see four of six against K-State. I see three of six versus West Virginia. Yeah, there are some stinkers in there. There's the one of fives. There's the two of nines, the 0 for fives, the one for sixes. And they still may be out there. But what I don't have any concern over is that this guy isn't still going to find a way to contribute and impact the game at a very high level. Because it's not just about shooting. He is going to fight through it and find a way to let his impact be felt because that's what All-Americans, that's what National Player of the Year candidates do. We'll get more into that Providence game and a potential matchup versus Miami or Iowa State if they make it to the Elite Eight. But first, let's chat with our guy Landon Lucas. 
Landon Lucas, repeat guest. He was on with us, uh, I think it was about middle of conference play or so back in uh, November or December, but now it's March and KU's still alive, so we're still going. First things first, uh, how's the golf game looking? What's the handicap sitting at right now? Uh, you know, right now, I, don't, I actually have not registered a handicap yet. I, I'm still in the process of booking enough rounds, but I, I usually shoot about bogey golf. Um, I did shoot my first round under 80. Um, it was a pretty easy course, but I shot a 76 from the from the tip, so I was pretty happy about that. Wait, you you went 76? That was your first round under 80, and you went all the way to 76? All the way to 76. <laughs> now, now, let me tell you, when, when I say easy course, I mean country club easy. Like, you could hit it just about any direction and have a shot, mm. second shot. So, you know, normally I shoot about, like, mid-80s. I'm happy. Low 80s is a good day. Yeah, you don't you don't apologize for breaking eighty. I don't care circumstances, especially if you're playing from the tips too. So, well, I, I hit it a long way, so the, the, I have to, or else it gets kind of awkward distance with some of them. All right, I don't want to get too deep into the golf stuff here, but how how far? Knowing that you're six eleven, how far do you hit it? Uh, if I swing good, I could hit it about three thirty. <laughs> probably, I mean, if there's some wind and stuff, I've had some yeah. drives that have gone farther, but. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, it's just about keeping it straight and that's what I'm working on right now. If I can do that, it goes a long way. Yeah. There's a lot of guys who hit it straight who would probably, uh, trade some accuracy to hit it three thirty. just to let you know, yeah. speaking, I'll take it. I'll take it from a guy who hits it about two seventy. I would, I'd trade a little accuracy for a little more distance. Um, well, I, you and I were talking before we got going here and it's something that I always find funny is that. With a lot of you guys who come through the program and then you go overseas and you're eight, nine, ten time zones away, it's really difficult to watch KU when they're playing it, you know, Tuesday at eight o'clock here against TCU where it's 5 a.m. or whatever it is, uh, your guys' time. And you were telling me how this is as much basketball, as much KU basketball as you've watched. So I'm curious, how has that, if it has at all, affected your perspective and sort of how you watch this team and how you analyze them now, you know, watching them every single night all season long. Well, there's a new level of like being a fan again. You know, I, I, it's one thing to be like, Oh, I was an alumni. I went to school there. I check in on some scores every now and then, but to be able to like follow this team as just a fan um, it's fun. I enjoy it. I get into it. I get into the games um, and so it is a different experience. I feel a little bit more connected to this team. Um, you know, it definitely makes me excited to be around basketball. I'm not a big basketball watcher just in general. Um, I, I watch it too, too much from like a, trying to learn, you know, like study film almost. So it's hard for me to enjoy it. But with this team, like I've been able to just sit back and enjoy it. Uh, it's been fun. It's a fun team to follow. So you say you watch it as a fan. Do you still, like, are you able to straddle that line between being a fan and also analyzing? Because I'm, I'm curious. I saw your tweet that saying that you, you were going to fill out Kansas to your national champion no matter what. But going into the tournament, did you actually view them as being a legit title contending team? Um, you know, I, I didn't for... A little, I think when, you know, when everyone else was starting to feel a little uh, antsy about it, you know, around that TCU game and stuff that late in the season, you don't like to have games like that, but it happens. And uh, the way they've responded to it, um, I, I had a um, TM on, on uh, the podcast that I do. And what he said that that game was such a, um, 
you know, kind of a changing, the, the turn that most teams have every year, that was the one for them. And so, you know, after that, I, I saw their progress the next few games and I saw Remy's progress the next few games and how he started getting more and more healthy. And I'll tell you, going into filling out that bracket, I was pretty confident that, um, you know, they would have a chance to to win. And, and the way the tournament works, uh, you know, that's all you can say is have a chance because so many things have to go your way. But they were definitely a team uh, going into it that I felt pretty confident could get the job done. Yeah, I think for me, I, I kind of I've been going back and forth on it all year. And I think what ultimately led me to, to viewing them that way is that I looked around the rest of college basketball and I said, if KU isn't a contender, then tell me where the line is between the contenders and everybody else. Because in, you know, I always think back to 2017, where I thought you guys were the best team in the country. I mean, you had Frank Mason, who was the national player of the year, and just every piece around it seemed to fit. But like you said, everything has to go right for you in March. It didn't. Oregon happened. And, you know, that's how the season ends. With this, with this year, like, I don't see the big bad wolf in college basketball, which is why I kind of say... KU may not be as good as some of the Kansas teams of the last decade plus, but they're good enough to compete this year with the crop of talent in college basketball. That's all you need. You you just need to be good enough and then have some things go your way. And right now they're putting themselves in position. And then, I mean, what a route that's opening up for them. So uh, obviously there's some, uh, I I won't call it luck, but there's some good favor on their side right now. Um, They just have to go out there and, and finish the job. But, you know, like you said, they, there's no team where it's like, okay, that's the that's the level uh, of team or teams that it takes to win, you know, this national championship um, that is above Kansas. I feel like Kansas is that top tier, and uh, they just have to handle business now, which, I mean, you never know what's going to happen in the tournament. Crazy things happen. You just have to take it game by game and just hope that, uh, you know, there's, there's no big blow up anywhere waiting to happen. I want to get to the path here in a little bit, but – when you talk about um, momentum, it's a fickle thing, right? Where you have it and you feel like you're riding high and you're cruising and then all of a sudden you don't have it anymore. Um, that's how March happens. And then all of a sudden, boom, you hit a wall, season's over. How much did that that first weekend in Fort Worth change your opinion on this team or your perception of how good they are? Um. <sighs> I don't know how, how much it changed. I mean, it was two tough games. Um, it's really interesting because if you look at like my senior year, I think even my junior year, yeah, my junior year too, our route to the Elite Eight was really smooth. <laughs> you know, like there was never really like a stressful game. We would handle the first round, you know, uh, business in the first round. The second round, we had UConn the first year, which we ended up winning by like 20. Um, and then we had Michigan State, which was close, but then we pulled away and won by like 20 in that one. And then we had Maryland and Purdue. And both of those games we handled pretty well. And so, like, it's really interesting because then all of a sudden we just came to a screeching halt. It seemed like, you know, with shooting and different things in those Elite Eight games. And then you look at a team like the one – I remember following this team because uh, I had committed to Kansas, but uh, T. Rob's year with uh, Tyshawn and all those guys who made it to the national championship. I feel like it was a bunch of stressful-ass games the whole way, you know, and maybe it was because I was watching as a fan, but I remember there was close games. No, they yeah. Were, there was you know, the- they were battling to make mm-hmm. it round around. And the next thing you know, they're in the national championship with one game left to win it. So, you know, it's going to be interesting. I think that sometimes these games could be helpful maybe. And you could look at it like, you know, 
maybe you're playing your bad games against teams that you're allowed to play bad and still win. And then, the, you know, they'll have their good games against the teams that they need the good game for. So um, I don't know how much it changes, but um, I still think that this is a team that 100% um, can win a national championship even after that first weekend. When you see a bracket breaking your way, and I don't know how much you guys are paying attention to bracketology or stuff throughout the season, but when you see it kind of lining up the way it is right now, where you've got a four seed, a 10 seed, and 11 seed standing in your way of making it to a final four, it, do you allow that to enter into your mindset? Do the coaches kind of snuff that out immediately? What does that do, or is it even addressed um, when you guys are doing it? I was just thinking that too, because um, I was, I was curious, you know, how coach self is handling this. And uh, for, for me and my experience, no, it, it was never really brought up. I think we all kind of knew, um, but both of my years that, you know, my junior senior year, we had um, pretty much chalk who we expected, you know, to be there, um, you know, in the sweet 16 and elite eight. And so it was just kind of just a, it, it never, nothing changed drastically enough for it to be brought up, you know, by the coaches. We just kind of knew who we were probably going to play, and then we ended up playing them. In a situation like this, it's a little different because I don't think they were expecting Iowa State and Miami to be the two on the other side. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious how he approaches it. But to answer your question, for us, no, we, we focused on one game at a time, who we're playing next, and we were just going to let the rest shake out, you know, however it may be. Does Bill generally coach differently this time of year? Is there ever a conversation entering the postseason about the sort of shifting of philosophies, or do you notice anything differently about the way that he coaches? Um, it's a lot more of like you you have all the information you need, now it's just time to put it in action. There's, there's a lot less, uh, I want to say, like coaching being done, you know, as far as just like, day one, early in the season stuff about positioning. Hey, we need this. We need this. This is how you do this play. It's more so about just hitting your cues, being on mark. Everybody knows at this point in time, he's prepped all season for it, what they need to do. And it's just about executing. And so his tone switches big time from, you know, uh, a lot more is, you know, trying to coach you up, show you where you need to be, what you need to do to just, hey, go out and execute. You know what you need to do. There has to be a lot less thinking going on with the players that are out there. You just have to go out there and react, play. That's why you see some guys who come tournament time, you know, that's when they're the most free and they go on those crazy runs and stuff because there's not, he's not trying to coach you, you know, every step of the way. He knows that if he's putting you out there, he trusts you and trusts that, you know, you know what to do and he's going to just worry about you executing your job. How much, I mean, without knowing explicitly, how much would you imagine that would propel a guy like Remy to play the way that he's played the last two weeks? I'm sure it's huge. I'm sure it's such a big thing because, I mean, I felt it and I wasn't even close to the situation that he was in, but you just get another sense of freedom. You know, coach really uh, puts a lot of confidence into you around this time of the year to just go out there and get it done. And if you have a role, um, you know, that's solid and you know the minutes that you're going to get, which Remy's starting to figure it out, um, I'm sure he's feeling as free as possible and coach is just giving him the keys at this point in time. And, uh, you know, he's handling it well. You said that you felt it, but at that point in the season, you had already kind of locked down the starting job. I know that there was some sort of fluctuations throughout 2017, I think it was, yeah. Um, but going into March, was there still, but maybe before that, that 
conversation or before you got that sense from from Coach Self, was there still maybe this idea that you had to look over your shoulder a little bit? No, I'll tell you my all the way from my sophomore year, you know, because I started postseason sophomore year, Big 12 and tournament. I started junior and senior, sophomore, junior and senior year. All years that during the season, there were all kinds of ups and downs for me. All, you know, will I play? Will I not looking over my shoulder? All this stuff. Each one of those tournaments from my sophomore year to my senior year, I felt 100 percent confident. I knew I had a role. I was not looking over my shoulder. That what that's what allowed me to go out there and perform and play well is because you know around that time it got to a point where he was going with me. I knew he he was, and you know I didn't have to worry about you know oh if I make a mistake or you know whatnot. And I, I think that's what he does with all of his players around this time because you need to get the most out of everybody. Nobody can be you know out there looking over their shoulder at all. And with with, with Remy and him. I mean, I don't think there's any debate about it. He's been KU's best player in both of those first two games in Fort Worth. I don't know where you were at all season because knowing that you do the podcast for the Field of 68, glue guys, by the way, I don't think I plugged that at the beginning. Um, check it out with Landon and his dad. It's fantastic. But, I mean, it, if you just talk to KU fans, you get on KU Twitter, like the fact that Remy Martin for about a month wasn't even playing or playing a significant role yet, he was still the number one talking point yeah. And the fact that now we're in March and I'm sure if you're at least I got to the point where I was tired of talking about it, where I'm like, man, either he, he's going to get healthy and play or he won't. I don't Could know. Could you imagine what Coach Self and, and, this, and those guys are feeling like? I'm yeah. sure they were so fed up. <laughs> yeah, but it's so funny that now we're at the end of the season in the most critical juncture. And here he is looking like the player that they thought they were getting when they brought him in. So um, are you surprised by it? And what do you think that adds to this team? I mean, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, the the whole the way that the season shook shook out with Remy, there were so many questions, and you know, nobody really knew. But what we saw and the, what we've seen from him from the time he came back and the progression that he's made, I mean, it's been as clear as day that he's been building up and getting healthier. He's been getting better defensively, getting more confident offensively in his role to the point where now, I mean. Like you said, he's he's been their best. Play. They I they won that last game because the way that Remy played. I mean, and and that's plain and simple. If he's not the Remy that we saw the other night against Creighton, the way that they shot the ball and stuff, that's a game where you go home and then it's you and Baylor sitting at home now as a two one season. I mean, he won them that game, and you know he he's just steadily been improving, and now it's like. You know, when you get into this time of year where you see guys just play free and stuff like we've been talking about, I think he could even take another step forward um, in some huge games. And trust me, he would go down as a complete legend if he, you know, leads this team deep into this tournament and keeps playing the way he is. Yeah, what's so funny is the reason they brought him in, and if you go back to the comments after last season where Bill came out and said, we need to get more athletic, we need to get quicker, we need to get more explosive at the guard spots, that's why they went out and got him, and they got Joe Yesifu. And it's been um, a sort of a mixed bag, right, all season with those guys trying to crack into the lineup and for different reasons, whether it's health or just execution, not being able to solidify their roles. And what what makes Remy great is also what I think has worked against him at times this year, like his ability to go off script and go ISO and get his own bucket. That's the reason they brought him in. But it's also, I think, a part of why he hasn't been able to lock down that role because when he goes ISO, 
sometimes it can screw up what else they're trying to run out there. So I, I don't think anybody on the team would trade what they've, they're getting from Remy because they know what you just said, which is that they're sitting at home if it's not for him. But how do you think having a guy who likes to go off script as much as he does, how does that affect the other four guys on the court? I mean, I think it could be really helpful. I mean, Frank was one of those guys for us where it's like if we needed a bucket and things broke down, he would dribble it out and then, you know, find a way to beat his man. Same with Devontae. We had two guys who could do it. Yeah, but um, they were so good at the set plays too, though, right? Like, they were really the good at the set plays too. I mean, I think that if you're capable of balancing it right, because there's a time to do it and there's a time not to. If all of a sudden the team's on, the other team's on some kind of run, you know, and there's a momentum clearly shifted to their side and you need a bucket and you need a good play. You got Coach Self, who is one of the best at that. You need to run that set play and do what he says. You know, you can't at that point go off strip, script, take a bad shot and just kill the momentum even more. But there's times where throughout game flow, it's necessary to have that happen. And a guy like that, especially in the tournament, there's so many off script things that end up just naturally happen- happening that you need that. So as long as he's doing it at the right times and he seems smart enough that, Hey, if you need a set play, you know, he'll stick to that set play. But um, that's the biggest thing is just timing it right. If there's going to be runs by the other team, when that run happens, the the less you need of, you know, somebody trying to maybe take over on their own um, at that point in time, you got to gradually, you know, take it one play at a time and get back into the game. Yeah, and I think that's probably just, I mean, I don't mean it as a, as a negative, but that's the downside of being a transfer is that you haven't spent the three or four years in a system learning the playbook and learning what the coach likes. So no matter how talented you are, there's going to be growing pains there that don't necessarily exist for those other guys. But knowing how, how demanding this coaching staff is and specifically Coach Self, how are your what are your thoughts on one year into this immediate transfer portal situation and on how it's sort of worked out and maybe what you think it's going to lead to in coming years when Bill Self and this coaching staff gets more accustomed to it and maybe is forced to loosen the constraints on what they want to see from certain guys because I feel like it's going to be a balancing act for both parties. It's going to be really interesting to see and you know coach Self he's done very well with the guys who he's had in his program for a while to get them to understand the system, understand tradition, understand all those things that come along with being there. But I think that he can find a good balance between the way he and the coaching staff handles it and the few guys that he does keep around on the team, you know, to really focus on bringing those guys who are in the transfer portal, you know, coming in maybe for one, two years to understand, you know, what it is that Kansas basketball is not only from a, you know, X's and O's standpoint, but also from, you know, just tradition, what it's like, the ups and downs of being Kansas. Um, and so, you know, I think there's going to be adjusting to do across the board with every school, especially with NIL coming into play. I mean, who knows where that leads to with the transfer portal, but, you know, I, I trust coach self in a lot of situations and he'll find a way to figure this out and, you know, with the tradition and now hopefully soon being the most winningest program of all time, right. um, you know, that is something that I think automatically there's there's you, you feel that as soon as you come into the program. So there's going to be some stuff that doesn't even need, you know, a ton of teaching. But obviously the X's and O's that's going to come down to, you know, the players who have been there and how the coaching staff handles it. 
I want to get into this Creighton game for just a second because I know it's going to be ancient history here in about 48 hours, but it was really interesting to see what they did defensively on the fly, knowing they weren't going to have um, their big guy, their, their rim protector in there, where they basically just said, we're going to ignore the point guard, we're going to clog driving lanes, and we're going to force them into taking these uncomfortable mid-range shots, which is interesting because TCU had a lot of success slowing KU down in the regular season doing exactly that, where it's, you want to take an 18-foot jumper off the dribble, go right ahead. But we're not letting you get to the rim. And it, it worked. Like, it, it slowed that offense down. And do you think that there is, do you think there's anything in there that other teams are going to try and mimic to sort of slow KU's offense down? I mean, I'm sure there is, and they're going to try to figure it out. I think, you know, Texas did a great job slowing mm-hmm. um, slowing Ochai down and, and really slowing the offense down, and some teams have shown shown it. Um, ultimately, you know, with this short turnaround for, you know, Providence is going to have the most time, and then you got Miami and Iowa State that are really – they're going to be focusing a lot of their attention on each other um, and then, you know, have a quick turnaround to the KU game. I'm not too worried because once you get out there, I mean, at this time in the year, there's not going to be a ton of changes. They could have a blueprint that they could try to follow. But if KU executes, there's nothing that I can see that these teams are going to be able to do uh, to, you know, stop them from getting to the final four if they can just execute. So I would say it's more on Kansas to do so. They can try to take some from the the Creighton game, from the Texas games, and different teams that have slowed down the offense. But there's a lot of weapons and a lot of guys that can uh, step up. And now with Remy, I mean, as a coach, there's a whole nother, um, you know, person you have to worry about. And Ochai hasn't even really you know, played to the Ochai that we've seen throughout the season. And that's still waiting to break out. And if he does that, then you got a whole nother problem. So, I, I mean, there's ways that you could try to mimic it, but actually going out there and executing is, is a whole different thing. And uh, it's going to be hard for, for teams to do. Was Ochai's off night, was that more a product of what Creighton was doing? Or do you think he just had a bad shooting night? Because I, I, I look back at it, I think he went two of eight on mid-range jumpers, which, I mean, those are low-percentage shots to begin with, but what can you do to sort of get him going? You know, I, I think that this this week is going to be helpful. You know, it's kind of just a break. You can reset. It almost feels, as a player going into the second weekend, like it's a lot longer than it actually is because, you know, you have so much going on. You, you just finished this, you know, four-team tournament that you got through. You're entering in a new guy, a new one. You get to go home, reset. I think that that's going to help. Um, and I could see that alone being something that could just help, you know, reset him a little bit. Um, and then I'm sure coach is going to try to find different ways throughout the week to get him involved because, I mean, that's just a, a weapon that's waiting to, to be used. We all have seen what he's capable of. Uh, and I'm sure as soon as he starts knocking down a few shots, uh, a lot of those mid-range ones are going to start going in. And then the more that team start focusing on on Remy a little bit more, I mean, he may be uh, even open for a few more shots than he wasn't before. All right, so now that you're officially in the media game, the Glue Guys podcast, the Field of 68 network, uh, you're in the same boat I am where it's like every game is like, is this my last podcast? Right, because if, if they lose next even, week... I haven't even thought about that yet, but you're right. I mean, mm-hmm. that could be it. Well, you, you'll probably do like a season wrap-up after this, after uh, the, yeah, yeah. whatever their last loss is, but it's sort of this living on the edge every single week. But how's it been? Are you are you still enjoying it? Because it's been a fun product to watch. You know, it's been fun. I, I'm going to be honest. 
for me personally, I could talk about basketball and KU stuff and answer questions and stuff all day. It's really hard. And I have a whole new respect for you guys who are leading the way. It's tough to lead a, a show and, you know, hey, ask questions and transition and stuff. My transitions are so bad. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like I'm just I, I, I'm very yeah. critical of myself, but it's been fun to be able to, you know, catch up talk to some of the former players, you know, people affiliated with the program and just, you know, have a, a outlet to be able to talk Kansas basketball and whether I'm going to continue doing it. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I definitely want to continue to do it in some um, facet or form, but um, you know, whether I'm leading the show as I'm sort of doing right now, I, I'm not sure how much I, I love that to be honest. Yeah, the fun part's just sitting back and giving your opinion, right? That, that's the best part. That's what I thought I was signing up for. The next thing you know, my dad's just taking a back seat, and he's like, all right, <laughs> you, you lead the show, and I'll answer the questions. I'm like, no, that's not what I was expecting to do. <laughs> but, you know, it's been fun. I'm always, you know, into learning. And uh, whenever I do learn something, I just gain a whole new respect for the people that do it at a high level like yourself. And so it's been fun to now have a whole new respect for you and, and everybody in the media game because it's not easy. There's a lot that you have to do, stay on top of, um, and you guys make it look easy. So, Well, I appreciate that. I don't know if I'm doing it at a high level. I'm doing it at a level. I don't know how high it is. but um... It's a pretty high level. Trust yeah. me, there's, there's a lot of people that are, are underneath you that you're All doing right. a lot better than. So. Well, as we continue to blow smoke up each other's asses, uh, I, it, it has been fun. It has been fun watching you guys because I don't really think there's anybody uh, like what you and your dad are doing, I mean, specific to Kansas, and you guys are doing it really well. So, um, yeah, I hope you keep doing it, man. But uh, thanks again for hopping on with me. It's always fun to catch up with you, dude. Sounds good, man. Have a good one. Okay, let's run through this Providence matchup and then sort of preview a potential showdown against either Iowa State or Miami in the Elite Eight. Providence, it's tough on paper to explain why this team is as good and has had as much success as they have this year. I love Ed Cooley. I really like this team. Now, I don't know if I would like them if I were a fan of them, but from afar... It's really fun to watch the way they've went about this season because, like I said, on paper, there's nothing that's really uh, super impressive about them. Statistically, their profile, uh, they get to the free throw line a lot. They are pretty good defense. They've got some length on the perimeter. Again, this isn't really statistics, but I guess there's nothing that they're outstanding at. There's nothing that you would look at and say, like Iowa State, for instance, which we'll get into. You've seen Iowa State twice. They're so pesky. They turn the ball. They, they turn you over, right? Tyrese Hunter is a pain in the ass to go against. Providence doesn't really have anybody like that. Like, a watch out for this guy. They're very uh, evenly sort of spread out in terms of point distribution. They, I don't think they have anybody averaging more than like 13 and a half points per game. But they just play really, really hard. They're experienced. They're one of the oldest teams in the country. I saw this piece from 538. Their average age is 23 years old, which would make them older than the average age of the Oklahoma City Thunder, which is 22 and a half years old. And you look at their sort of main rotation there. They go senior, 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 senior. Durham, Watson, the point guard, and the big guy are probably their two most impressive players. But again, this is not a team that you look at and, and break down by individuals. They are a sum of their products, which is 
a very experienced team. They are pretty long. They're going to go 6'4", 6'6", 6'7", 6'8", 6'10", which is why they're a pretty stout defense. Like They don't have anybody who's uh, hounding ball handlers. They don't really have a true rim protector. They've just got five guys who know how to play really well together. So we can get into the conversation of experience versus talent, and I think every coach in America would take the talent over the experience. But when you find that right groove where you just get the right five guys together and they all buy into playing a certain way, there is no other way that this Providence team could go about winning or being a four-seed or being alive in the second weekend of the NCAA tournament in the way that they have this year. Ken Palm has them as the luckiest team in the country and one of the luckiest teams in the history of his database. And if you're wondering how the hell you could calculate luck, uh, I don't really understand it either, but it's effectively what you are expected to do versus the outcome of your games. When you win a bunch of close games, when you win a bunch of single-digit games like Providence has this year more than any team in the country, the data would suggest that okay, if you've played in 25-point games, for example, and you win 17 of them, if you were to play 20 more, you're not going to win 17 more of them. It's that it will even out over time when you get in those close games. Think about Kansas, for instance. Early in the season, we thought, okay, this team knows how to pull out close games. The game winner by Brown against Oklahoma. The game winner against uh, Iowa State by Dewan. Ochai down the stretch against Texas Tech and Allen Fieldhouse. There were all of these close games where you said, if there's one thing this team knows how to do, it's close. And then the Texas game happened. And he said, okay, well, maybe they're not that great at closing. It's not that it's necessarily an identity that you can't possess. It's that over time, things tend to even out. That's why so many people were low on Providence. That's why despite winning the Big East, they still were sitting there at a four seat. Because again, their statistical profile isn't that impressive. And when they've lost games, they've like really got their ass handed to them. They lost by 18 early in the season to Virginia. They lost by almost 30 to Marquette at the beginning of conference play. Other than that, they don't really have any damning losses. They lost to Nova twice. They lost to a Creighton team that we just saw KU go up against in the Big East tournament. But that Creighton team beat them by, again, almost 30 like two weeks ago. So it's all matchup dependent. I totally understand that. But it's tough to conjure up a reason why Providence is going to be able to keep this close against Kansas other than you just think they have a want to. And I'll be honest with you, man. I'm a sucker for teams that have the makeup of Providence, where not a ton of highly recruited guys, a coach that hasn't been here before, a coach that's embracing what everybody's saying about him. Like he had the quote from a couple of weeks ago. He's like, yeah, you know what? We are a lucky team. So I guess we're just going to have to keep being lucky and keep winning games. Like if I'm a player, that's what I want to hear you say. I don't want to hear you come out in the press conference and say, yeah, you know, we keep winning close games, but we should probably be winning by more. All right, we're going to have to work on that. Winning by one or two, that's not quite enough for us. We need to be going for style points because that's what we're basically talking about here. And it's antithesis to everything that we love about college basketball and this time of year. So when I'm trying to preview how this game is going to go and what Kansas is going to do to have success against them, it's pretty simple. I'm just saying, like, play your game. Don't have one of those ice-cold shooting nights where you go 2 of 15 from 3. Play with some poise because you know the other team is going to. But the flip side is, it's not that hard, honestly, to come up with the way or the route for Providence to have some success and keep this a competitive game. 
I think the line's at about seven and a half or eight last time I checked. The way you keep this close if you're Providence is just by doing what you've done all season long. You don't have to have a Creighton game where you, you hit 12 threes. It would help, but that's not how you keep this close. You keep it close because you are the oldest team left in the tournament. You are all like-minded in your approach and your focus and your goal. It is singular. You're playing for the coach. You embody the coach. And I know this all sounds like sort of cliche, throwaway, college basketball sayings and phrases, but that's how I feel, man. I love this Providence team. And if you weren't going up against them, this would be the team that you'd be rooting for because everybody's counting them out, yet they still find ways to manufacture wins and want a pretty good conference in the Big East. So uh, poise, to me, is the big one for Kansas. You, You can't have one of these games where guys look skittish. I think back to that TCU game because that's the one thing that this Kansas team worried me with late in the season. Uh, the Texas game where you should have won in Austin. The next game in Allen Fieldhouse, you had a chance to put Oklahoma away, and you didn't. You let them hang around. And then the TCU game where you were effectively down from the tip and in a non-hostile environment against an average Big 12 team, you allowed yourself to get rattled and played that way for 40 minutes. Now, that was a while ago. I mean, what, three weeks ago, so I guess not that long ago. And things have changed since then. You've got Remy Martin in the mix. He adds another dimension that you didn't have previously. But that's how you avoid it. I'm not saying it's going to happen. KU could very well end up winning this game by 10, win comfortably, because they are infinitely more talented. And they've got, you could argue, just as much experience with all of the guys that have been in Bill Self's system for as long as they have. So uh, I, I do think that Providence is able to keep this one close. And Kansas wins, let's say, by six points. So I guess I'll take the Friars to cover. Okay, so if Kansas is able to win that game, then they are moving on to the Elite Eight where they would face off against either a 10 seed or an 11 seed. And you've got to feel pretty happy about the way this bracket has broken, especially not just being a 10 and 11, but the 10 and 11 that are sitting there. And I'm not saying that Iowa State and Miami aren't good teams, but let's just break it down one by one. Iowa State, first off, you've already beat them twice this year. I think TJ Olzelberger's done a great job. Probably should have won Big 12 Coach of the Year. Honestly, maybe even Mark Adams should have won Big 12 Coach of the Year. Uh, About two weeks late on that take, but it's easy now that both of those coaches are still playing in the second weekend of the tournament. Iowa State isn't all that impressive because what's so funny about them is, as you saw twice this year, they're just really annoying to play against and the way that those guards defend. I, I mean... Brockington got a lot of the credit this year, as he should have, because offensively he was their catalyst. But the guy who made that thing run was Tyrese Hunter, and we saw that in their first-round win against LSU when the dude just went off and sort of carried them offensively. And that's what it's going to take for Iowa State because offensively they don't really do a lot that you like. It's a bad offense. It's an ugly offense. But that's how they want to play. They want to play slow. They want to grind it out defensively. They want to turn you over. And those guards are just going to play pesky defense. Something that we talked about on the Monday episode is three-point defense and how it it would be suggested that there's only so much you can do to limit three-point effectiveness. You can limit three-point attempts, but if guys are dead set on shooting, they're going to shoot, and if they're good shooters, they're going to find ways to make shots. Iowa State is eighth in the country in three-point defense. Eighth in the country typically is sort of a throwaway number. I look at that and say, okay, well, you got lucky that teams didn't shoot well against you. And then you look at what Iowa State has done 
in the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament. Iowa State, so far, has allowed teams to hit approximately 14% of their three-point attempts. LSU went 4 of 19 from 3. Wisconsin went 2 of 22. So the, the statistical profile that carried them throughout the season, not just at a good level, but at an elite level, has continued throughout the postseason. And Miami, I look at, meanwhile, in their first two games, they went approximately 4 of 29 from three-point range. So, I don't know. If you're looking to get right against three, maybe don't do it against the one team that has seemingly found a way to keep other teams from hitting three-point jumpers. This is going to be an ugly game. It's going to be a really ugly game between two experienced teams. That's the funny thing about the comparison between those two teams in Providence. Iowa State's basically putting four seniors out there. Miami's putting three seniors and one junior. But again, the 30,000-foot view, like the minutia of these teams, it's like you understand what they do sort of well, their experience, they're playing with poise, Chuck Moore, old friend alert, doing some things for Miami. So those two teams, I think, have more easily identifiable characteristics that have gotten them to this point as opposed to Providence who's just sort of old and grizzled and play the right way from a talent perspective like there's a reason these are 10 and 11 seats Jim Laranega is a hell of a coach I think he's sort of gotten forgotten with what he did at George Mason and then had a a really really nice career at Miami and Altsberger who knows what he's going to do but uh, he's done a hell of a job this year with lackluster talent, and I'm excited to see what he'll do at Iowa State over the next three or four years. These are the types of teams that you would want to face on a quick turnaround. A team that you're incredibly familiar with and a team that just isn't all that talented in Miami. The pressure is on Bill Self in such a massive way to get this team to a Final Four. And it's really, really tough to imagine how it doesn't happen. I know it's probably, in reality, easier than the way that you imagine it to be. But, damn, you're talking about three teams that are all ranked outside of the top 30 in Ken Palm entering the NCAA tournament. And you are one of the top six teams in the country. This is not really an excuse-type situation for Kansas. There is no reason a week from now we're not talking about a team that's prepping for a Final Four matchup in New Orleans. It's a lot of pressure for any team, but you're two wins away. You've got the most experienced coach. You've got the most talented roster. Now go out and get the job done. All right, thanks to Landon Lucas for joining us. Thanks to you for listening. Hopefully we're talking about a Final Four matchup coming up on Monday. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review. Thanks for the time. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.